G'day you mob, Pete here, and this is another episode of Aussie English, the number one place for anyone and everyone wanting to learn Australian English. So, today I have a GOSS episode for you where I sit down with my old man, my father, Ian Smithson, and we talk about the week's news, whether locally down under here in Australia or (laughs) non-locally overseas in other parts of the world, okay? And we sometimes also talk about whatever comes to mind, right? If we can think of something interesting to share with you guys related to us or Australia, we also talk about that in the goss. So, these episodes are specifically designed to try and give you content about many different topics where we're obviously speaking in English and there are multiple people having a natural and spontaneous conversation in English. So, it is particularly good to improve your listening skills. In order to complement that though, I really recommend that you join the podcast membership or the academy membership at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get access to the full transcripts of these episodes, the PDFs, the downloads, and you can also use the online PDF reader to read and listen at the same time, okay? So, if you really, really want to improve your listening skills fast, Get the transcript, listen and read at the same time, keep practicing, and that is the quickest way to level up your English. Anyway, I've been rabbiting on a bit, I've been talking a bit. Let's just get into this episode, guys. Smack the bird, and let's get into it. Alrighty, so... True millipede. First true millipede. New species with more than a thousand legs discovered in Western Australia. Exactly. This was an epic story. I saw this come up and was like, I I did a, a, um, I think it was on an expression episode where I was talking about the difference between centipedes and millipedes and how there are no true millipedes with 1,000 legs or more, but now there are. are. So, researchers named the subterranean animal- It's a classic. Yeah. Eumelipes, which means- True millipede. You millipes and then Persephone, which is the Greek goddess of the underworld. Persephone. Persephone, is it? Yeah, Persephone. Yeah. See, there I don't even know the um, yeah. embassy. The emphasis on the emphasis. right syllable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a crazy story where they found this um, millipede with 330 segments and 1,306 legs. Uh, down, I think it was 60 metres underground in a mining area in the eastern goldfields of WA. Mm. So, they found it in a cave, effectively, and it smashed the last record holder by like 550, 556 legs. The um, previous record was set by Ilacme plenipes, uh, which is found in central California and has up to 750 legs. So, very cool. So, it turns out apparently, yeah, they were doing a biodiversity um, survey. Environmental impact statement. Yeah. For it. Yeah. yeah, in these caves, obviously, probably tied in with, with mining of mm. one, one sort or another. And they ended up finding these cool species. I think some of the really cool stuff was that um, the reason that this species has so many legs is tied to why it's uh, an underground animal and that it helps propel itself forward yeah. more. It gives it more grip, more purchase on the the ground beneath it. So, it's um, stronger and able to move around, I guess. And they were thinking it's a fungi eater. I think all millipedes are actually herbivores or mm. at least well, non There's not much else that's going to be you know, 60 metres underground in a cave. There's not much other, insects. other than 
Yeah. Other anthropods and other yeah, arthropods. arthropods and fungi. So yeah. So anyway, it was a really cool story. But um, yeah, just love insects, love millipedes. Look at that thousand, one thousand. It's not an insect. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Arthropod. Yeah, arthropod. Well, do you want to explain that, Dave? Uh, Why isn't it an insect? We need it. Well, you got to do that. You it, can do that. Insects, People who don't know insects are a taxon, as in a group of living things um, that have. Basically, three body parts and six legs. That's the easiest way. And ex- external skeletons. Yep. So, that's the easiest way of talking about it. So, things like flies, wasps, bees, ants, yep. mosquitoes. Beetles. Beetles, butterflies. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because we kind of use bug as just this sort of catch-all phrase for yeah. anything that is a, an arthropod, right? Anything that is kind of like crawling, yeah, has many legs. Bug, but, in fact, a bug is a particular order of uh, a smaller taxon, a smaller group within insects. It's a particular group of insects are called bugs. Well, and we don't yeah. we use it as well for some crustaceans? Yeah. That are sort of like crabs, yeah, That's crab, the common right? name. Yeah, yeah. those, um, yeah. the bugs, yeah, they're yeah. not- Morton they're not Bay tinned. bugs, yeah. So, it was, it was cool, and I was sort of looking into- The thing I guess I find really cool about, about um, these sorts of arthropods, I guess sort of like centipedes and millipedes is- how much the number of segments their bodies have varies. Yes. It's it's interesting. Like, I would love to know more about the evolutionary explanation for why, say, insects don't just end up with many different yeah. thoraxes, yeah, I guess eight, you would- With eight parts of their body rather than three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why don't they end up with, you know, some have eight, some have ten, yeah. some have three, some have two, whereas millipedes, it's almost like every species has a different number of- yeah. Of um, segments, which is effectively to explain it, it's kind of like the thing out of which the legs pop. You know, yes. that you see these multiple um, parts um, each, of the body. Each segment that will have four repeat. legs in these cases. So, yeah. yeah, and so it always blows my mind. I would love to know more. I guess it's, yeah, it would be so interesting try, as an evolutionary biologist. Why would, what would be selecting for more or mm. less segments? Yeah. In, you know? Well, I suppose it's uh, getting longer. Um, if you want to, yeah, if. There's an evolutionary advantage to being longer. You know, if you're underground, the, you've got no predators. Yeah. The only way to get longer in the case of these animals is to have more segments. Yeah. Um, or one long segment. And one long segment, you, you're not... Uh, it's a, What is more likely to happen in an evolutionary context? That you're going to replicate something you've already got 300 of? Or all of a sudden, you're going to have a longer segment that has eight legs instead of four? It's almost impossible to work out how you're going to get more legs on a single segment. Well, and I looked this up. So just replicating segments. Yeah, I remember learning about this in in biology, but it's Hox genes. H O X genes are these type of. Well, I've got the the explanation here. Hox genes are members of the homeotic transcription factor family that play a key role in controlling the body plan along the craniocaudal axis. So head tail axis of an animal and specify segment identity of tissues within the embryo. Mm. Mutations in Hox genes result in homeotic transformation of that tissue. That is, one part of that tissue develops into another part of that tissue. Yeah, so you can basically replicate body parts. As in whole segments of body parts. So well, you effectively, don't just all that happens is that leg. gene duplicates, yes. right? And then you, yeah. it, it codes for one more segment. That's right. So, the yeah. you would imagine that this millipede that has 330 body segments 
is going to have a corresponding number of genes, whether it's exactly one it would, Hox gene yeah, for every single segment. It would segment. be interesting to know, um, and obviously it's way beyond this article. Um, <laughs> and I don't know how many individuals of that you know, type uh, that they are calling a species they found, um, but it would be interesting to know if there is there variation in the number of segments within the species. So yeah. Is 330 the number or is it just something more than 300? Some have 320, some have 336. Yeah, it's, uh, it'd be interesting to know that. Well, and the, so I looked it up here too. There are certain species of snakes where they have vertebrae up to 300, right? And I guess mm. this would be the equivalent in, in um, vertebrates. So, things with backbones would yeah. be the number of bones in their backbone. Mm -hmm. And it seems like- so it, It's interesting. I think like giraffes, we well, think they have, have more the bones number. in their neck, right? Than, than, yeah, exactly. Than, than we do, but they don't. They just have larger bones yeah, in their yeah. neck and they still have whatever it is. Whales, seven. giraffes and humans have the same number of neck vertebrae. Yeah, yeah. which is crazy <laughs> when you think snakes, it varies a heap. Yeah. There can be some snake with, it says up, up to 300 or more vertebrae. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, and I would imagine that whole heap that are very that's short. That's a, um, a morphological equivalent of millipedes having more segments because yeah. vertebrae are little just replications of the segment structure in the spinal cord of a, of a vertebrae. Oh, yeah, I wonder if you could ever have a mutation. Sorry, a black kite flying around outside the window. Not an actual kite, but a bird, A right? bird, yes. <laughs> some some bird kid in the prey. next yard. Yeah, it's not, not some kid flying a kite that happens to be black. But, yeah, I guess yeah. the equivalent in humans would be like if someone if someone had the whatever the genes are when they're developing as an embryo for your hips and legs were to duplicate and yeah. you ended up with like the human centipede. Yes. <laughs> which is the, if you've seen that movie yeah. where you've got Don't like bother. three people attached to one another and they yeah. all have, you know, different lim limbs. But yeah, if that were to ever happen, it'd be sort of like that. But yeah, it is it is interesting. I wonder if things like Millipedes and centipedes above ground that are more active would have fewer segments because it would mean there's less of them to grab onto for predators. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. you know, just from looking at this, it looks more like a worm than a millipede. Yeah. The legs are clearly tiny. Um, and I suspect the legs are not so much used for um, locomotion as used to hang on. So, they're really operating like a worm with legs, you mm. know, little you know, things stuck out the side of them. So, yeah, it from just the look of it, you look and go, that could not possibly survive on the surface. <laughs> Even regardless of it, of it being grabbed by predators and things, it would just break. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's like a piece of string. You know, it's, not a, you know, it's not what we would typically see as a surface arthropod. Why are animals underground usually so different? You want to talk about that a little mm. bit? I find that really interesting. Like this, this millipede is white. Yeah. Which is, I would imagine, a very rare colour for a, any kind yeah. of insect yeah. on above ground. Maybe um, a moth or something, a butterfly you'd underground see Underground and deep sea yeah. are the same things in that they're extreme environments in a sense that there is, they're extremely controlled and uh, consistent environments. And when um, they don't have light. So, there's no light. The temperature doesn't change. The moisture won't change unless there is a catastrophic event. Um, so you get these sort of weird, and they're you know, it's it's when we discover these animals that are you know and even plants, you know, you know fungi and so on that are living this far underground, or you know, animals that are living on you know um, 
undersea vents, you know, hot you mm-hmm. know, vents that are, you know, thousands of metres below the surface of the sea. They're almost always white. They're almost always white or they're almost always, um, they're not new types of animals, which you would sort of think this is a completely unique environment. Mm-hmm. You know, how come we're not discovering a completely new taxon, you know, large taxon, well, a new class of animals. Mm-hmm. Like we've got insects and we've got, you know, spiders and now we've got millipedes aliens, right? and now we've yeah. got an alien, yeah. Um, they're just variations on the theme, but they're these sort of bizarre variations because they are no longer subject to the same uh, selection pressures that you know, animals that are typically on the surface that have far more variable environments that they have to cope with uh, and different pressures of you know, predation and competition and so on. It's a, it's a bizarre sort of environment when you think about what's it like living in the soil 60 metres below the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's going to be the same for a million years. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. So, and you well, don't need eyes. It's dark. You well, and that was don't need was to be able to, to move at, much right? because um, I suspect these are eating, you know, microbial, you know, small um, fungi and bacteria and stuff that are just going to be living in the soil around you. You're not going to have to go running around hunting. Yeah. Well, that, that's some <laughs> so, of the interesting thing. I, I need to look into this, but I have a feeling that caves and deep sea environments tend to be relatively, um, what would you say, lack kind of diversity yeah. quite a bit. They'll have a key, few key species that mm. kind of live there, but often like around the vents, you'll see there are shitloads of Beauty mussels- And worms. Crabs and worms, and yeah. they kind of all have this symbiotic or that, you know, that the, the food chain is pretty set up there where the crabs yeah. kind of eat whatever they can get. I remember, I think there's one where you see them and the, the worms coming out of the tubes put their red- um, I don't know what you would call them, like tendrils out to yeah. try and grab floating things by. And the crabs are constantly sitting at the top, kind of trying to grab one of the tendrils to yes. eat, you know. <laughs> and so, it is it is it is really interesting, but they're all white, you know, yeah. except for the tendrils, which are red well, for whatever reason. Well, the thing is that um, producing pigment costs, uh, costs money. Yeah. What, so, energy, money. Yes, well, yeah. it costs energy and, and it's- um, not just not just energy in the sense of actually producing it, but energy to maintain metabolic pathways in order to keep producing it. Yeah. Um, so anything that you can, if you can get an advantage in terms of the amount of energy that you're expending by stopping doing things, um, then yeah, like we have stopped doing video. Yeah. <laughs> We're now just doing audio podcasts. So um, yeah, then there's an advantage to that uh, because you can spend your energy on something else. Or you well, don't need and, yeah. to go and collect as much energy. And that's the that's the challenge in many cases is just finding food. And if you can reduce your energy intake, uh, sorry, your energy expenditure to account for the fact that you don't have as big an energy intake, then you're going to be okay. So. Yeah, that was always one of those really interesting things to learn about with biology and evolution. And that there's that constant tra- trade-off. Like if you think of an animal is going to get over its lifetime a certain amount of energy, you know, say 100, mm-hmm. it gets to do put that energy into different things like sperm production, body size, tooth size, and it has to kind of weigh these, well, like not personally, but like in an evolutionary scale, it has to work out or evolution works out for it, mm. which of these are most important. So, like, I think one of the memories that I have from the evolutionary class is like the rhinoceros beetles that have those massive horns on them yes. that are effectively, they come up head to head on logs and the goal is for them to throw one another off the log to yep. lift one another up using their pincers or their horns 
and, and you know, defeat their adversary. But if in growing larger weaponry, you know, horns and, and pincers, they take the energy from that bucket of energy that they get throughout their entire life from sperm production. Yes. And so, they dis- they, they, there's this beautiful balance between how much energy the animal can spend on weaponry and how much it needs to hold on to to produce sperm to be able to reproduce with mm. the females. Because obviously, if you spend all of your limited number of or units of energy on just weapons, you, you max that out and you have nothing for sperm, you can't pass on those genes. Exactly. And so, you get selected but out. If you had a whole bunch of sperm, but you don't get You've the opportunity to, to use them, with, <laughs> yeah. use it, then it's a waste of energy. Yeah. And that, that's, look, uh, you know, as you know, I'm in a, a study as an evolutionary biologist as well. Um, and that was the, I suppose the thing that I found most interesting studying uh, biology was, was trying to work out and understand from an evolutionary perspective what the costs and benefits were for any organism's lifestyle yeah. and and how those lifestyles have evolved to account for all of those costs and benefits because there's never one or the other. I mean, the one you gave was a, a good example of one right? that is a trade-off. Yeah. But there are usually 50 of those and each one of them is trading off against the others. And, and so just- Contemplating those things is uh, is a really interesting thing to um, to sort of spend your life doing. I think. So. Well, yeah, and arms races, right? Where you, once you have in- animals interacting like with one peacocks. another, different species, and yeah. like lions and antelopes, for example, the antelope has to get more fleet of foot, right. faster and faster and faster. But in doing so, it becomes more fragile and frail, right? And so, yeah. it can slip up and break a leg pretty easily. Mm-hmm. The same reason that horses can break legs pretty easily. And lions, as a result, have to kind of get faster and faster and faster. And so, they have that trade-off too of yeah. size versus speed. I think it's the same with like cheetahs, right? Cheetahs have to get- they're, they're the fastest land animal, but as a result, they're incredibly frail. Yeah, and they if they got any faster, they would break their legs. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't fight. Like, if they were to catch something, a lot of the time their food's stolen yes, from other because animals. Because they can't defend it. Exactly. Yeah. And those other animals can afford to sort of give up needing to be able to chase animals down. So, mm-hmm. things like hyenas or lions, although lions do quite a lot, because they are able to also steal yes. from other animals exactly. that are better at capturing. capturing. bigger and stronger. So, it is amazing yeah. to see that evolution isn't this active force or natural selection isn't this active force that determines anything, but this kind of natural process of settling- on these yeah. kind of traits it's a whole that lot takes of, place it's, it's a multi-dimensional equilibria yeah, yeah. Of, of, uh, of forces that are operating. Speaking of which, completely random. I don't know whether you saw- uh, I haven't found a print article for it yet. Did you see the news last night? There was a, a two-minute or 30-second grab on the, on the news of a lioness who was- shielding and helping a baby wildebeest uh, get back to its mother. I assume that would have been because the lioness had just given birth. Don't know. Presumably, yeah. I expect it was, this maternal instinct mm-hmm. thing. But but it, it was just bizarre watching this. And the wildebeest was, <laughs> was clearly less than a day old as well. It was wobbly on its legs wow. and things. This tiny little thing walking, almost touching the haunches of this mm. lion- um, and apparently the, the lioness uh, effectively, I don't know, it took it back, but protected it until it got back to its herd. Yeah, I found it on here. Yeah. So, let's see. Um, 
Astonishing footage has emerged of a lioness appearing to lead a lone wildebeest calf back to its herd in what a wildlife official has described as an act of love. The Tanzania National Park's official Twitter account posted the video Monday in which a lioness is seen walking side by side with a plucky wildebeest calf half her size as she escorted the baby animal back to the safety of the, in the Serengeti National Park. Such behaviour is highly unusual and has led Pascal Chalutete, um, the spokesman for the Tanzania National Park's authority, to tell the BBC the lioness's maternal instincts must have overcome her mm. natural predatory instincts. Yeah, that's why I said yeah. I think she would have been... Um, she would have... Have, but, haven't, having just given birth. Yes, but it's astonishing footage. It's, it's pretty weird, isn't it? look at it and go, what? I've seen a few of those, though, especially with lionesses for yeah. some reason. I don't know. M- maybe jaguars, too, where they, for whatever reason, they've just given birth and they must have this huge amount of, of you know, hormones going through yes. their systems that are- Oxytocin kicks Don't be in violent, and, take yeah. care of your babies mm. kind of hormones. And they're and this, um, not killing- Baby say, wildebeest fits in the same pattern as baby lion. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, as-, as um, your mother, when we were watching this uh, on TV last night, as she turned around and said at the end of it, so she said, so that lioness, when she dropped it off back at the herd and said, I'll be back for you when you've grown up. Yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> so, better you better not um, become the sickest one in your mm. in your herd or you'll be taken out. It is pretty weird how that those sort of aberrations occur. Yeah. Like, I always wonder how things end up mutually working together. You know, like a good example of that evolutionarily would be the mantis shrimp and the, is it a guppy or something? The, the yeah. fish, they both live in the same hole, right? And so, the, the mantis shrimp is effectively the protection, yeah. the muscles, and the fish is the thing that digs the hole out and yeah. moves the rocks out. And so, the mantis shrimp's just sitting there with its pincers. It's the thing that can like- It's the defender. Yeah. It, well, they're these weird shrimp that have this um, this weird- claw that has the ability to break the sound barrier, I think, when they click yeah. it or create yeah. a sonic boom mm. effectively, right? So, they're creating this explosion that I think- And I think within that explosion that they create when they click their pincer, they they do it at such a speed and with such power, even though they're tiny, that it creates this explosion of, of gas. And apparently, that's hotter than the surface of the sun for a millisecond, <laughs> yeah. right? When that happens. But you're like, how- how does that evolve? Is it a one-time thing where one mantis shrimp, for whatever reason, <laughs> paired up with a guppy and they ended up both reproducing and passing on those genes? Mm. Or is it the kind of thing where the two species are sort of at an interface but, interacting- it, just hanging around. And, and it just repeatedly of, happens yeah. until it becomes the norm. Because, mm. yeah, those sorts of, of um, mutualism where they're two different species working together to benefit one another as well as themselves, that always just blows my mind how that- that happens, right? It is. It is interesting. Anyway, we should probably finish up there. We should. End Chat here next end time, of guys. The biology lesson. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>